This is episode 199 of Alohomora for August 6th, 2016. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Alohomora, MuggleNet.com's global reread of the Harry Potter series, except now we're not so much a reread <laughs> this episode. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Kat Miller. And I'm Allison Sigurd. And our guest this week is Frank. Welcome, Frank. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello, uh, my name's Frank. I'm, uh, I post as Wizard or What on, on the website every now and again. Oh. Yay! I'm... Uh, uh, sourced into, into Ravenclaw in, in, in under Pottermore, uh, mm. which broadly suits me because I, I dabble in academia and, and as an academic lawyer, uh, and I'm a barrister. Oh, wow! 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 Okay, I am out of my I'm out of my Ravenclaw element here. <laughs> no, he's really rocking the Ravenclaw yeah, today. He is, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, I, like he's the flip side of the coin for me. I'm like the weird, quirky weird Ravenclaw, and he's like the very smart, studious Ravenclaw. So it's good. It's good. <laughs> Frank, what's your history with Harry Potter? When did you get into it? Uh, I got into it in about 1999. I was given a copy of The Prisoner of Azkaban by a family friend. So I read The Prisoner of Azkaban first, which I think helped a lot because I think it's the best one. And um, <laughs> and then then was later given The Chamber of Secrets, which I read, and then um, then The Philosopher's Stone, and then started reading them in order because they, they didn't go back any further. Um, oh my uh, goodness! So you started at three, went backwards to one, and then went from one on, and, uh, and then went four, five, six, seven. Oh wow! Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> That's a very different approach. But you're right. Prisoner of Azkaban is a great one to start with. Yeah, well, it matters less than you'd think because they don't actually spoil each other much. They don't really cross the yeah. fur. Oh, anything like that's... as much as you'd think they would when you're reading them forwards. Yeah, no, I think that's um, something that a lot of people consider a positive about the earlier Harry Potters is that in, in many ways they can kind of stand alone yeah, as so their own. Not, not so true if you with um, five, six, seven. No. Yeah. No, definitely have to have read the other ones to, read, to really fully understand those. But what an interesting way to approach it, though, still. That's usually when we get an unusual approach, it's the, the, the most unusual ones we get are the people who are like, I saw the movies first, then mm. I read the books. So that is a whole other deal entirely. That's really cool, though. Yes, I'm not, not a particularly big fan of the films. I thought they were a bit, a bit underwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you know, we have our very strong opinions about uh, the films. Um, and... Uh, we know you listeners out there have very strong opinions about Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. No. We, <laughs> we ask, we beg, we plead with you to hold them in as tight as you can. We will give them their, we will give that book, that play, that script its fair due in the next four episodes because we're going to devote each episode to one act of each part. So we'll get there. Just keep tweeting us about it, because you've been doing great with that. Uh, we've been seeing all of your tweets and trying to respond and help you through this, this strenuous <laughs> time. <laughs> we will work on breaking the curse of Cursed Child in the next episode. But Kat, tell us what we've got coming up today. Sure, we're, gonna, we're going to talk about some more of our very strong feelings, because our topic this week is Umbridge. <laughs> 
And Ooh. I've been waiting for this one a while. I think it's going to be very good, very interesting, kind of the antithesis from our McGonagall episode, which was the last episode. So I, th- I think... I think this is going to be a good one. I'm excited. Dolores Umbridge, she's the topic. So definitely be sure to check out her backstory on Pottermore just as a refresher before you listen to the episode so that you know what we're talking about because we're not going to go through it, um, you know, bit by bit. So have, have a read. Have a read before I listen. Yeah. But before we jump into that, we just want to remind you of our Patreon and to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Richard Casey on Patreon. So thank you so, so much. We appreciate appreciate all of you. You're absolutely amazing. And you are the reason we are still here doing this. Um, And if you want to sponsor us, you can for as little as a dollar a month. And we're going to continue to release exclusive tidbits for all of our sponsors. So head on over to either our main site and click the Patreon tab or to patreon.com slash alohamora. Uh, but before we get, and before we get into our main discussion, we want to make sure and let you listeners know kind of the, uh, points about Umbridge that we've each picked out to examine a little further, uh, because there's a lot, obviously, about Umbridge Mm -hmm. to discuss. We're not probably going to even get to every topic you would like to discuss about her today. And for that, we ask that you listeners head to the main site, alohumora.mugglenet.com, where you can leave your thoughts as we go through this discussion. But we'll uh, let you know what points we're kind of honing in on today. I have personally selected some of Umbridge's relationships and interactions with those she encounters throughout the series. Um, I'm particularly interested in some of the stuff that was revealed in Pottermore, but that definitely ties into some of the people that she uh, had encounters with in the books. And I'm very interested in exploring the comparison that is often made between Umbridge and Lord Voldemort, because you hear a lot of people say that I think Umbridge is worse than Voldemort, and we're going to explore that today. I'm really excited about it. It's going to be so good. good. (laughs) And for my part, um, it's a little bit more niche, but... Uh, as I am going to start teaching in 15 days, uh, I am looking at Umbridge as an example of the worst kind of teacher. Are you sure you don't mean Snape? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other episode. Oh, here comes the can of worms. <laughs> right. <laughs> Frank, what are you interested in in Umbridge? Uh, well, I'm interested in the other stuff she's trying to do in that year. Um, so I'm going to talk about why... Um, why she doesn't really achieve anything of what she set out to do during her <laughs> fifth year. That's a long list. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. But I suppose for now we should start with some quick facts. That sounds like a good place to start, I think. You know, ease us into the, um, the whole ripping that I think is going to be <laughs> happening on this episode. As we all know, so her full name, Dolores Jane Umbridge. Although, you know, there is a little fun fact about that that actually... Um, Hermione's middle name was changed from Jane mm-hmm. to Jean because um, when was it changed? So that was changed around the point that Umbridge was introduced to the series because very, very early on, um, Rowling gave Hermione's middle name as Jane. Right. But she changed it to Jean because she felt that associating Hermione and Dolores with the same name was a mistake. Sure. Because they were so opposite. So that's why she changed it. But we don't ever hear, I was going to say, we don't ever hear Hermione's middle name in the books until after that change, right? I'm not crazy. Yeah, I, I don't think so. Yeah, okay, it, yeah. The, all, of, so. all other instances of her middle name 
happen outside of canon, I believe. Like in, I think the next time it was mentioned was either an interview with Rowling or on her old website. Jean is mentioned as a name in uh, Deathly Hallows when um, when they're reading the will. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. the only one I could think of. Same, but mm-hmm. yeah. Either way, so talking a little bit more about Umbridge's name, it says this is from J.K. Rowling on Pottermore. Just so you know. It says, quote, Umbridge's names were carefully chosen. Dolores means sorrow, something she undoubtedly inflicts on all around her. Umbridge is a play on umbrage from the British expression to, quote, take umbrage, meaning offense. Dolores is offended by any challenge to her limited worldview. I felt her surname conveyed the pettiness and rigidity of her character. It is harder to explain Jane. It simply felt rather smug and neat between her other two names, which... Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think if I know any Janes, and I don't think I do. I kind of wish I did so I could know if they are smug and kind of mean feeling. <laughs> I do, but it's spelled differently, and she's very much not smug. Wait, <laughs> so. How do you spell Jane with a Y? Yeah. Oh, okay. I like that this is one of those rare instances where it truly is Rowling just being like, it sounded nice. Like, she never <laughs> says that. <laughs> she She's always got a really long, complicated reason for something. So it is kind of nice to see that every once in a while, yeah, she just chooses something because it, it sounds nice. Umbridge's birthday is August 26th, which, for the record, makes her a Virgo, which is funny because the, the traits of Virgos are it says quote you often impress others with your discipline trustworthiness and generosity so she doesn't exactly fit that description she she does impress people with her discipline and trustworthiness i suppose that's true but generosity most definitely not well i guess in a way it's kind of a fun little play on things since she's kind of the that's that's all the things that she uh, she tries to appear to be that's true. She she isn't actually those things, but she definitely wor- strives to appear that way. Right. Like the Patronus and how she, yeah, the pure of heart thing. Right. Same mm-hmm. thing. Her wand is eight inches. It's made of birch and the core is dragon heartstring. And birch is unfortunately not one of the woods that is summarized um, on Pottermore by Ollivander. However, there's a little note here that says it was used in the Firebolt and it's known to give an extra oomph for high ascents. So take from that what you will. I thought that was interesting that it's not uh, summarized by Ollivander because, and I don't know if that means potentially that she got her wand from somewhere else because oh. Ollivander's list is a comprehensive list of all of the wandwoods he uses. Yeah, that is strange. So interesting. It's possible that she got it from somewhere else because there are other there are other wand makers. Where did she grow up? What part of England? Mm, doesn't say. I don't believe. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think it says. Interesting. I I'm interested that maybe I'm just going crazy. But so in the in uh, order, it says that her wand is unusually short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's eight inches. Is that unusually short? Am I just thinking of? Yeah, my wand, uh, my wand is 13 and three quarter inches. Okay. Well, my, that... w- my wand is 10 and three quarters. I think that's mine as well, actually. Okay, so, that makes yeah. more sense then. Yeah, that would be, I mean, even with the, even with the, if you're not counting the handle as part of that length, that's, yeah, that's still a pretty short wand. <laughs> And I suppose the the last final thing that we should mention, which I think is obvious to everybody from the moment we meet her, she 
was, is, and will always be a Slytherin. <laughs> I know a lot of people were upset about that, though, when that was revealed, because there was kind of the feeling It seems that, a little easy. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, a lot of people felt she was just dumping characters we don't like into Slytherin. Oh, I see it, though. I see her kind of overwhelming pride and ambition, which are kind of the, uh, well... Not good ambition, I guess I should, should say, which are kind of the the bad sides of Slytherin. Yeah, I do think her kind of again, ambition kind of is the overwhelming point point of her personality. So it kind of it would seem that Slytherin would be a good fit for her. Like I could only she also has the pure blood supremacism. Yeah, yeah, uh, that is definitely which, true. Which when she was sorted was probably a much bigger deal. Right back in the day. Yeah. Oh, I lied. My wand is 14 and a half inches long. I just looked it wow. up. Wow. Your wand is really long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and Hagrid's is something like 15 something or 16 something, right? Yeah, I think wow. it's over 16. Yeah, I remember so. when I got it, I was like, man, how long is Hagrid's wand? Like, I had to look it up. Yeah, it's very <laughs> long. It's very long. Yeah, it's over. Well, I mean, um, that's over a foot. That's a giant wand. <laughs> the thing to remember, too, about wand length, and it doesn't necessarily like this isn't completely the meaning depending on what your wand wood is in your core but olivander generally believes that partially wand lengths are determined by height but that's not very common um it's usually because of personality um there's like certain things about your personality not necessarily that your personality is more full or more complete than somebody else's, but just certain aspects of your personality contribute, I guess, to your wand length. Yes, it it says, actually, I scrolled down as you were saying that, it says, and this is in the description of the length, it says, abnormally short wands usually select those in whose character something is lacking, rather than because mm. they are physically undersized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so there you go. Uh, those were all the new things that we learned about Umbridge that were from Pottermore. Pretty much everything else was backstory, which I think is very important, but we're going to talk about that in each of our uh, kind of focus questions. So, Al, I guess I guess this is you. You want to yeah. start us off here? Um, let's start off then with kind of where we first meet Umbridge, which is in the classroom. Um, so I've been thinking about this for a while, actually. Uh, a couple years ago, um, my university, we have, uh, it's called the BYU English Symposium every year. Um, and there was a panel on teaching examples using the Harry Potter books. And one of them that I particularly remember, I couldn't quite find it. I looked for it online, so I'm sorry that I can't link to it or anything. But it particularly focused on Umbridge and Lupin as opposing teaching styles. Obviously, yes, yes. Lupin is the, the best <laughs> and Umbridge is the worst. <laughs> um, and so I kind of, like I said, I'm going to be a teacher very, very soon. Which I, anyway, that's another story. <laughs> but uh, I was kind of looking at her methods. Um, one of the biggest things we see that a lot of the students have a huge issue with, especially coming off of Moody the year before, or Barty Crouch Jr. as Moody, and Lupin the year before that, is she focuses on reading the textbook over practical application. But that got me thinking. Okay, but this approach leads to the formation of Dumbledore's army, which in a lot of ways is the ideal teaching and learning situation where students 
are taking responsibility for their own learning um, and kind of teaching each other mm-hmm. with just some guidance from a teacher, which, I mean, they don't have tons, but they kind of have Lupin influencing Harry, giving him some tips. They give him some methods books. So can we kind of say then that maybe she helped them learn more? Do you guys think they learned more this year or would it have been better for her to be a good teacher? Well, only those who actually joined Dumbledore's army are going to actually learn anything useful. The mm. others are just learning some not particularly interesting things in a textbook. Yeah, That's I true. most definitely would have failed her class in a heartbeat because I have to, I'm a hands-on learner. I always have been, and I'm aware of that of myself, and I definitely would have failed that class. I Umbridge also would have hated me wholeheartedly, and I would have been okay <laughs> with that, but I would have failed. Most definitely. Wouldn't you have joined Dumbledore's army and you'd be okay? Yeah, I would have definitely joined Dumbledore's army. I'm all about that. I was going to say. Especially that cute Dean Thomas. Just saying. (laughs) If if I hadn't joined Dumbledore's army, which of course I would have, but if I hadn't, I would have have passed her class, but I wouldn't have gotten anything out of it. Yeah. um, Because I would have been able to read and take the necessary notes, but it would have felt exactly like I felt when I left my Spanish 101 class in college because I passed with an A+, but I left that class thinking to myself, I can't speak Spanish at all still. I feel like I'm at the same place I was when I left when I came in here. And I definitely don't want to take Spanish 102 because I don't feel ready. Right. Um, Like that's that because we didn't have enough of that. Like the, the teacher encouraged us to... If we had the extra time, which in college does, but <laughs> she time. she encouraged us to go to like you know the 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 language groups where we could utilize our Spanish and um, you know form groups to do it out to do the work outside of class. But um, yeah, it was never in class. It was just the text. It really wasn't that far off from the text. Yeah, um, I know. Don't de este baño. <laughs> That's I'm good. Know. <laughs> that is important. <laughs> and I can yeah. probably count to maybe 14. That's about it. I, I feel the same situation. I took four years yeah. of Spanish and I, I mean, I know almost nothing. Yeah. Well, um, I actually, it, it reminds, she reminds me most of my high school econ teacher who we actually, someone once called her umbrage to her face and she had no idea what we were talking about. Oh, no. <laughs> um, probably yeah, for the best. Yeah. She unfortunately even looked like Umbridge is described, but there was this funny thing where everyone who actually read the textbook got A's in that class if they like fell asleep in that class. And <laughs> everyone who tried to pay attention to her teaching failed <laughs> because mm-hmm. she was a terrible teacher. Um, yeah. It's, I mean, it's a good question though, Allison, about whether she in a way helped them or not. I think though, Everything Umbridge did that year inadvertently, it, it helped, but not in a way she intended it to. Mm. She mm-hmm. she helped by constantly causing the students, at least the students that rallied around Harry, like Frank was saying, to rebel. Um, she was that bad. And right. it's kind of, it's interesting that you're, you know, this this class you were giving the example of was was specifically comparing her to Lupin because there's that scene where um, pretty much all of the previous, like Dean basically reels off all of the previous 
uh, teachers and why they were better. And then Harry even brings up that, like, because Umbridge, the only one she holds up in high regard is Quirrell. And Harry points out that he had Voldemort on the back of his head. (laughs) Um, So it's, it, it is kind of perfect to, to look at her against our previous examples. Lockhart's really the only one that doesn't really count, I guess, in this situation. I feel like they learned something from Lockhart, though. What not to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's a valuable lesson, in my opinion. Yes. So at least he was good for something, right? How to get rid of pipsies. Yeah, exactly. Well, more than that, though, as we know, uh, Umbridge seems to have absolutely no grasp over children and adolescent development or learning style. Um, <gasps> one of my favorite lines they added to the movie, actually, is when she says there will be no need to talk and Hermione says no need to think. It's more like it. (laughs) Nice moment. Although if she had done that in the book, she would have been put in detention like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Which speaking of detention, that seems to be the kind of thing that Umbridge thrives off of is her cruelty and punishment. Um, especially kind of creating an air of fear and oppression. Poor people at Hogwarts that weren't in the DA that year. Like, can you imagine? And it's funny to compare her to fake Moody because he was a fantastic teacher. Like, they learned a lot from him. And there was a stinking Death Eater inside. And Umbridge is worse. (laughs) I mean, we're going to get there. We're going to get to the comparisons later on. But, um... It's it's pretty bad when you are worse than a fake, well, an in-disguise Death Eater. It's pretty bad. Yeah. Well, the in-disguise Death Eater was actually a really good teacher. He seemed to be incredibly capable uh, as, as a chap. For sure. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, he was a great teacher. <laughs> uh, particularly given how busy he was, because he had to spend half his time plotting and half his time planning <laughs> lessons. Well, right. and... The I you know, the reason he was, of course, so good is because he's been steeped in the dark arts, but... The thing that I guess is impressive about him is that he managed to put all of his, like, insane beliefs, like, keep them in his pocket for so long and actually teach a defensive course. Mm -hmm. Um, So he was like, he was like Lupin, but the other way around, because he came from the other side of the tracks Um, in that regard. He was just as well trained, if not more so, perhaps, in the actual dark arts. I always um, wonder what would have happened to him, what Voldemort would have done to him if he didn't get kissed. But that's another know. episode. Apparently we yeah. need to have an episode on Barney Crouch Jr. <laughs> <laughs> Add it to the bottom of the list. We'll be podcasting so until 2050. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there should be people listening at that point. So Probably could. We probably could. <laughs> yeah. Um, it got me thinking, though, I could only think of one other literary teacher that could be comparable, which is Trunchbull from Matilda. Can you guys think of anyone else who kind of, because part of me, I mean, you read Umbridge and you think, oh, that's a very stereotypical kind of trope that you get in literature and movies, but I can't think of any other names. Well, I like that you brought up the Trunchbull because, and I don't remember, I distinctly remember this from the film version of Matilda. I don't remember from the book because it's been quite a while since I've read it. But in the movie, there is this great moment where she she has a line where she says something along the lines of, oh, children, nasty little things, I never was one. And 
that kind of embodies umbrage in a lot of ways to me. Mm. Um, cause like what you were saying, Allison, that she has no grasp over adolescence and, and like early development <laughs> at all. Um, seems to stem from the fact that she despises children to the point where she certainly would seem to act like she never was one. So I think the trench bowl is actually an excellent comparison. Same, cut from the same cloth, mm-hmm. definitely. I want to put a pin in this discussion and have us remember this when we get down to talking about Percy. So somebody uh. remember these thoughts, okay? Let's remember There's this. The only other character, just because you brought up the idea of the fear and oppression... And I hate to, like, I feel like there's another character that could better substitute for this. But I'm only bringing it up because this character specifically talks about it. And I'm not referring to the original Lewis Carroll version. I'm referring to the god-awful Tim Burton version of Alice in Wonderland. And the Red Queen has a whole piece in the movie where she talks about if it's better to be feared or loved. Hmm. And she ends up choosing fear. Um, but she has this kind of momentary kind of lapse in, in, in where she's wondering whether she's doing the right thing. Um, and from what I've heard, looking glass deals more with that, but I didn't even see it. Uh, but, but I know there are more characters, perhaps in literature like that, who who choose to rule with fear versus love, I guess. I mean, even in Harry Potter, that's a big right. thing. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the listeners will have a laundry list of other teachers for you. Cause I, yeah. Cause I, I hope so. I, I went, I even went looking online to see if anyone else had any ideas, but I couldn't figure out if she seems so familiar because it's literary tropes or if, everyone has just come across a teacher like that in their lives. And so Mm. it's just so familiar to all of us. Um, Which speaking of which um, in the Pottermore information, uh, Joe says that she based Umbridge on several characters. She took a certain dislike to. Um, She tells a story about uh, one who had a, a yellow hair bow. I think it was in her hair or something that, she yep. just mm-hmm. automatically just couldn't stand her, and the teacher couldn't stand Joe either. So, do we think in real life these teachers are really as bad as they come out? I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but do we really find that we all have an umbrage somewhere along the line? I didn't have an umbrage, and I don't know if that's because I was always that kid who got along with her teachers, or if because I'm just incredibly lucky. I I had a I had a lot of really good teachers actually growing up. So I didn't have an umbrage that I remember. I mean, it was a long time ago. I had an umbrage as a boss, but I never had an umbrage as a oh. teacher. Oh. <laughs> and no, I'm not talking about my current job. If anybody I think <laughs> is listening, none of you are umbrages. <laughs> it's not you guys. Um, but yeah, I've had I've I've definitely had I've encountered umbrages in my life, but not as, not necessarily as teachers, I think. And Rowling even said in her writing that she was fearful that people would take that to mean that these particular individuals were umbrage. Right. And she, she said, you know, don't make that, um, the thing. Cause really she insists the only person she directly based somebody off of 
was Lockhart mm-hmm. and that everybody else, if they were based on somebody in any way, it was pieces and parts of them. Cause she even says that this teacher that she didn't like, she had an irrational hatred for <laughs> her. Like she didn't even know why she didn't like her. Wait. You'd hope that you wouldn't find many actual Umbridge's teachers because Umbridge's job was literally to stop the kids from learning defense against the dark arts. So she'd, you'd hope that you can't really base base that on any real teacher whose job is to, to right. teach. That's true. I do wonder if that's, I mean, I suppose we'll get there, but if that's the mission that Fudge set her on, is to stop them from learning DAGA, or if it was more of a monitor and make sure they don't learn too much? Well, that's my last question, is what do we think about Umbridge as kind of commentary on government interference in education? Um, I mean, I know coming from a teaching perspective, that's a huge conversation is how much legislation, politics in education is too much, how much is needed. Um, it's What do you guys think? You know, Frank might be able to speak more to this because I, the three of us can only speak from the U.S. side of things. Mm. But, I mean, <laughs> there, are, there are people here in the U.S. who will tell you that the government shouldn't be involved in anything, um, which is funny because then this, <laughs> this would be an interesting country <laughs> if we didn't have a government at all. Um, but some people want it that way. Uh, I mean, I think on... From what little I know, and I, I, I come more from the library background, and the library is, libraries overall are protected by something I've mentioned on the show before called the um, American Library Association and the Freedom to Read Act. Um, so we, we have faced government interference. Um, like, for example, there have been a lot of libraries who have been told not to put up displays for the Black Lives Matter campaign because it's supposedly pushing an agenda. Um, but there are, notwithstanding that that is not correct, there are other, uh, causes that we as libraries do promote and advocate for, um, in, in, in our system to the public that it is our responsibility to advocate for, um, so the, that was a moment of kind of interference from a higher level that was not approved of on in the in the library system. And that even actually did come down from the ALA, I believe, where the ALA was kind of pushing against the, the library systems about that. But I know the most I could think of here in, in the schooling system, and Allison, maybe you can speak more to this, is um, standardized testing. Uh, yeah. Has become kind of the bane of a lot of people, a lot of teachers um, because it puts a lot of the idea of core curriculum and having to meet a certain testing standard puts a lot of stress on teachers, limits their creativity, and doesn't account for the individual nature of a stu- of students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one one of the biggest things in that too, especially, is um, there's a lot of concern over who's setting the standards um, because a yeah. lot of times it's not people that have a background in education, or if they do, they haven't been in an actual classroom for a while, um, which Mm -hmm. is concerning because then they don't know, okay, here's what our students need to be learning. Here's how our students are learning. Here's kind of the things that we need to be focusing on. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's a huge conversation in education in the U S right now is, uh, okay. Like how do we feel about cores and 
the common core and state testing and national testing. And how are we supposed to be able to make sure that kids are learning what they need to learn, but also not interfering in the individualistic needs of mm-hmm. teaching and learning. Do American schools not mm. have actual inspections of classes? No, not really. No, no, that's kind of what our standardized testing um, makes up for is that the the test results and there are so many standardized tests now um those go back to kind of the higher levels who use that to assess they use those scores to assess how school districts are doing and then they kind of respond based on that unfortunately sometimes the response can be a tad over extreme Strictly based on the test results. That happens in state colleges as well, because my niece is in a nursing program, and the three years before her, she hasn't graduated yet, she's a sophomore, Um, the three years before her, the classes didn't do well in the standardized testing, so they're considering shutting down the program. Oh, wow. So I feel like, yeah, bringing, bringing it back to Potter, I feel like that would be a thing that I would see happening if Umbridge had stayed High Inquisitor over the years, I feel like a lot of things would have been shut down over time. Well, yeah. Allison, what you said about the concern that the people who are making those calls are, aren't people who have hands-on experience with what they're making calls for, I think that's the concern, the main concern we're meant to take away from Umbridge Mm-hmm. And the ministry interference is that these individuals are not capable of properly capable. They are not certified to be doing the job they are doing. Yeah. And maybe, maybe that's what it is, is, is being more mindful of who, who has been, who has been put in or elected to leadership roles um, rather than necessarily so much what they're doing as a, as, a, as the aftermath of being elected or put in that position. Yeah, it's a, it's a question of capability. Yeah. Which I think feeds right into what you wanted to talk about, Frank. Uh, yeah. Um, you, so you, you, you talked about, talk about why, she, why she's a, a terrible teacher, and I, I'll, I'll talk a bit about why she's a ter- terrible everything else. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Love it. Um, so she, she goes into Hogwarts with sort of three things she's trying to do. She's trying to teach or not teach Defence Against the Dark Arts. Uh, later it becomes apparent that she's also trying to inspect and get rid of teachers, and, and she's also trying to take over the school and suppress... Voldemort awareness. She's trying to make sure people don't don't feel that Voldemort's coming back. So she comes into this whole thing with, with three jobs, really, all of which are really full time jobs. Uh, so you wonder how she's getting any sleep, particularly given <laughs> that she's apparently watching the fireplaces and uh, uh, <laughs> and and um, intercepting owls. So I suspect that's part of the reason why, why she does a, such a bad job is that she's doing it all on two hours sleep a night. Um, but. Um, more importantly, I don't think she's at all qualified for it. And I think this is what, what Rowling's trying to say a bit about about um, inspecting of, te- of teachers and also about leadership. Because um, she, she's a pretty terrible uh, inspector. Uh, and in England, uh, we do have uh, full-blown inspections of, of state schools, so people sitting in classes and forming views on, on the standards of, of the teaching. Uh, and well, it's that's extremely terrifying. Controversial. <laughs> and it's extremely controver- <laughs> controversial, and, and teachers don't like it. And Rowling was a teacher, so I suspect this is really what she's getting at in terms of, of, um, 
of what Umbridge is doing. I think she's having a go at Ofsted, who are the organisation which do it. That's the Office for Standards and Education. Um, and various criticisms are made of Ofsted. Um, the first and most obvious is that it pressurises teachers, so you don't actually see how they normally perform. You, you see them performing under pressure, and, and you see that with, with Hagrid and Trelawney. Uh, who just fall to pieces uh, during it. Um, well, Trelawney's <laughs> always awful, but Hagrid's better when he's not, not under pressure. And you can see, mm. and you think that's a, a criticism of how inspections work. Um, the second big point is that um, she, they, she was seen, seen to be biased and she sort of wants the teachers to fail. And I think that's a criticism that's also made of Ofsted, but it's not really being supportive. Mm. It's just being inquisitorial, um, uh, so, so I think Rowling's having a, a go at them on that front as well. Um, and, and the final thing I think she has, there, there is a close allegory with Ofsted, is, is that Umbridge doesn't really know anything about teaching. Uh, mm. she, she, she's a pretty appalling teacher in, in, in her own right. And she's a civil servant and knows absolutely nothing about it. And I think that's the same criticism that's made of Ofsted inspectors. So I think Rowling's... Um, by making Umbridge the, the inspector and having her conduct the inspections as she is, it, it is, is having a go at, at Ofsted and the idea of, of, inspect, of inspecting uh, uh, schools. Uh, although she goes a bit further because she makes a point of constantly embarrassing people in public, which, which rather, undermines, um, uh, uh, rather undermines her relationship with, with everybody. Um, so that, that's her as an inspector. I think that's why, why she's particularly terrible at it, and I think that's what Rowling's trying to say. Um, and, and the second thing she's trying to do, as well as be a teacher, she's trying to take over the school. Uh, and again, I don't think she's very good at it. Um, I, firstly, she doesn't keep track of her own rules, so she keeps falling into elephant traps. Uh, uh, the obvious one being that she thought that Harry had joined, the, had set up an illegal group because she'd banned it the next day without making her her change in the law retrospective, um, which which was. Uh, Really, a rookie error in, in, in terms of that. <laughs> Discipline uh, rule number uh, and, one: consistency. <laughs> right. Well, well, yeah. She, well, she's writing the law. You might as well make a retrospective, mightn't you? Uh, and, um, <laughs> and and secondly, she she just forgets that she can't appoint for the placement for Trelawney. She just forgets about it and doesn't even think doesn't think it through. <laughs> uh, and and has frenzy landed on her. So, so she doesn't keep track of her own rules, and I suspect that's because she's so sleep deprived, because she's having to do all these things. Um, but of course, <laughs> lots, lots of lots of wizards in the wizarding world do seem to have multiple jobs. Like Dumbledore's apparently a member of the Wizengamot, as well as being uh, a head headmaster and doing all sorts of other things. And Moody, of course, had his was a sort of tour de force of of plotting polyjuice potion brewing and um, and teaching <laughs> at the same time. Um, so, so people can apparently do it, but I don't think Umbridge, Umbridge can. Um, uh, but more importantly, I think there's sort of something about leadership here, which is that um, no one has any confidence in her because she goes out of her way to alienate everybody. Um, she even alienates the people who um, you might have thought might support her. The obvious one, one is Snape, um, but she gets on his batter very early by going into his class and constantly asking him about why he hasn't been made the... Uh, DADA teacher, and he, and you can see him getting angrier and angrier uh, over the course of it. Of course, he was actually um, uh, working for Dumbledore all the time, but insofar as she had any chance with him, it was gone. Um, and, and she just steadily alienates everybody. Um, it would have been relatively easy, I think, to make Harry Potter um, relatively um, 
illegitimate and seen and just keep to do and seen as incredible and that's just try not try not to um uh overreact but she's incredibly paranoid and into doing she she manages to legitimize him um and finally she sides with people she knows are really unpopular she she sides with filch and and a really small handful of sliverins uh, as as her base uh, and uh which will go toward alienating them as well so she's pretty remarkably bad in all all of her roles and i think that she's actually largely a sort of parody of how not to do things it's funny too it's fascinating that mention of uh by frank about that that she alienates snape because now that i'm thinking about it maybe there's more to this that i'm not remembering um because order of the phoenix was a while ago but it's kind of funny that dumbledore didn't make snape kind of befriend her befriend yeah. her because he could have kind of kept a closer eye on her i mean mm-hmm. it's it's kind of implied that dumbledore i guess we kind of go along with that his omniscient nature is allowing him to be watchful of her because he still seems pretty aware of what she's doing mm-hmm. probably because like you said she's not very um she's not very coded <laughs> about her behavior she's quite sloppy so maybe that's why she doesn't need snape Another problem she has is she keeps telling everybody what her plans are. She she yeah. o- openly she openly tells Harry Potter that that um, uh, all of his posts being opened, um, which she didn't have to, but she chose to do. She openly tells him that all the fireplaces except her except her own are being watched. She she um, just blurts these things out. Well, there's definitely a certain kind of uh, hubris, ego, pridefulness that Umbridge. Yes carries about her that's a bit of her undoing as well it's um, it's it's the monologuing that a lot of villains do at the end of yeah. movies yeah. when they've when they've caught the good guy but umbridge just does it in little tiny bits all the time she sprinkles it throughout because you're right it's definitely a, a hubris thing and i i, I always just kind of giggle myself when she starts going into that monologuing if, even though they're not very long there's sometimes just a couple little sentences or two, but it's, it has the same feeling as, you know, that big villain has caught the caught the good guy and is going to explain the entire thing and how to unravel it all once this person gets loose. <laughs> well, she's so she's so confident in her own kind of rightness that she just expects everyone to hear what she's saying and understand that, of course, she's right and just fall under her. I think I think that's part of that. Um, that failing is that she she's so convinced that she's right in what she does that she thinks it'll be so easy to, uh, it'll be so obvious to everyone else to turn to her, her side. So she's mansplaining. is what she's doing. <laughs> <laughs> Really? Well, and with, uh, to Allison's point earlier about how she doesn't understand teenagers, that also ends up being her undoing because she assumes that by, when she her first night in the great hall and i i love her speech um her speech is one of my favorite parts of order because there's so much to unpack in it um is is she she purposefully chooses this very uh heady wordy rhetoric um to hide her true intentions behind um but like you were saying frank she seems to have uh, forgotten the fact that Dumbledore and a bunch of perfectly capable adults are sitting behind her. Mm. Um, 
and they understand exactly what she sh- she's and saying. And the students, there are students that are capable, and <laughs> you know, it's mainly Hermione, well, yes. but apparently some other like. <laughs> well, and Hermione makes sure that's the other thing again with underestimating the students is that Hermione um, spreads that information. Uh, she doesn't keep it to herself. She makes it quite clear through her behavior in Umbridge's class and through what she does with the DA and to Harry and Ron that she she very quickly makes clear what how she interpreted that speech um to others around her so regardless of whether they listen or not so yeah there is definitely that that underestimation in the spirit of underestimating people she also w- walks into the forbidden forest with with Harry and Hermione <laughs> yeah. for no reason yeah well the, you have a point here about her paranoia and by that, and you know that that goes along perfectly with the supposition that she's not getting any sleep, <laughs> mm, well, yeah. because she does pretty much lose her mind by the end of the book. I think even more so in the film, Amelda Staunton really played up her kind of unraveling. Yes, especially the way that they kind of because they had it follow up. They had that directly follow up the fireworks scene, so she was all just like frazzled yeah. and covered in soot. Um, so it kind of added to the insanity. Plus they were doing the costuming thing with making her dresses pinker as she was going crazier, um, and taking more control. So that definitely the aesthetic of her added to that. And I really, it's, it's disappointing that they took this out. There's, there's more to her last, you were talking about monologuing cat. There's more to her last monologue before she gets dragged off in the movie. Yeah. Um, She has quite a bit more to say and it's great. Um, because it really does show how completely off the rails she's gone. Um, I mean, the movie does it all pretty pretty good on its own with what it's already got. But it, what's what got cut was um, a nice addition to her kind of insanity. But I'm glad to see. I'm glad though that we have a British listener on the show because Frank was able to actually speak to that direct criticism that Rowling is probably targeting with Umbridge. Yes. I think I think I've heard. I, I feel like Rosie's mentioned Ofsted before. Probably it sounds really familiar, was, but I yeah. don't know why. <laughs> well, she probably mentioned it when we were reading Art of the Phoenix. Oh yeah. <laughs> so probably. did you did you know more about that? I oh, I just I a little bit followed um, British education changes in the past a little bit too because I've thought about going over there to teach, but mm. so I mean I don't know tons, but I've read a few news stories about criticism. <laughs> well, get ready. If you go over there, now you're prepared for to have an inspector. Yeah, that's absolutely terrifying. No wonder everyone does, <laughs> doesn't do great. And Umbridge's expect inspections like that's, well, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, that's I don't think they're actually quite like that. I think they normally just sit quietly at the back. But... Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> they don't go. Still, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of pressure to see someone that's not normally there and to know that they're, basically judging you <laughs> yeah and apparently a lot of them are surprise inspections so you're not told about it until that afternoon or something. so if you've planned a day of fun and the inspector oh, comes no. in and it's like oh poo <laughs> maybe we shouldn't do this today but i don't have a proper lesson <laughs> I, I feel that... like there are some people who would properly enjoy an inspection uh hermione for one i've had classes inspected uh, i i i uh i i teach at a university and uh ha- and at one of the universities had a have used to be inspected once a year, but it was a a much easier thing because 
they were really just telling you how you could improve rather than suggesting that you ought to be fired. Oh, that's always better. Yeah, than... <laughs> that's a lot easier. That is always better. Hmm. It definitely wasn't Umbridge's goal. So is there anything that Umbridge actually goes to Hogwarts to accomplish and actually accomplishes? Well, she stops the vast majority of the, chi- of the children learning any practical defense against the dark arts. That's true. I think she gets the mission across of keeping keeping everyone in the dark about Voldemort for the most part. She at least keeps yeah, no, she at least keeps everybody wondering. Um, she keeps them on, a lot of people on the fence until the quibbler um, thing. Well, yeah, the quibblers were Even down. then I wonder how many students actually read that and believed it. Um, I always once she banned it, it became much more Yeah. Um, much more widespread. But I wonder how many students just decided they were just going to keep their head down that year, and so they didn't go looking for trouble at all, you know? Um, I'd say probably a lot, because if there's, say, maximum maybe 20 to 30 kids in the DA, that still leaves, oh, what's 1,000 minus 30? <laughs> and you've got 900, 970 kids that are still not really participating or doing anything. Right? I would think I would think that a fair few uh, you know yeah. more than just a couple read that because Umbridge wasn't just vilifying and being obnoxious to just Harry and just Gryffindor, she was doing that to everybody. And I feel like with the exception of the few Slytherins, um maybe other houses, I don't know who was in the inquisitorial squad, but I feel, for the most part, people probably hated her. And like Frank said, the minute that she banned it, I feel like more people would have read it and been on Harry's side, whether or not they believed it. But I wonder, I wonder though, how many of them would have given into the fear, you know, of, well, she just passed this, nah. you know? Because I think, for the most part, that she's a lot of talk. I mean, sure, she takes action, but I also think that she's a lot of talk. And I think that that speech she gave at the beginning of the year shows that. And I feel like some people would be able to read between the lines of Umbridge and would realize that she doesn't quite have, um, what's the word, the stealth, perhaps, or the wherewithal to catch them in the act. Mm. Because she never actually caught anyone as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's true. I mean, as far as I'm aware. Right? I think it says that in terms. I think it says she never found, she never seemed to be able to catch anyone with it. Mm. Right. That's so, true. So I have a feeling that a lot of people were doing it just kind of as like, you know, uh, an F you to her, whether or not they believed Harry or cared about it. Mm. Is That's what I think anyway. Okay. Well, there is that point too that I believe Hermione and Ron make to Harry that there are individuals who do believe that their families are at stake if Umbridge catches them with something because their families work for the ministry. Um, Mary, I believe Marietta is one of those individuals and that's why she tattles. Um, so there is that element to remember too, that there are individuals who might even believe Harry, but they can't take any more action than just believing him to themselves. Right. Um, I think Marietta should learn from that and be more scared of Hermione than Umbridge. <laughs> That's just me. <laughs> Harry becomes a lot more credible once um, the Death Eaters escape from Azkaban. Azkaban, there's, yeah. And there's yeah, no real explanation for, for, for how they've done it. So so overall, she 
achieved what she pretty much set out to do, even though it wasn't in the way she expected to. Right? Is that- until, I think on, until the very end. Yeah, I think on paper she did, but I don't know if she necessarily got everyone with her, you know, especially in taking over the school. I mean, she obviously didn't. So, on paper she took over, but... I definitely think she thought she'd be there longer than a year. Yeah. She was settling in like she was going to be there a while. Well, and and she, she didn't that- really change for teaching practices either. She got rid of... She didn't. She sort of. She got rid of Trelawney, but replaced him with Firenze, who was probably even worse for her. And she couldn't get rid of Hagrid. Right. Yeah. Uh, so she didn't. Well, other than stop people from learning practical defense against the dark arts, I'm not sure she really achieved anything. She did. Yeah. She all of pretty much everything she did was temporary. But yeah. I think the the thing is, and we see that as we go into Half Blood Prince, is that. She does have a lasting effect um, that I think is to her advantage. She manages to stay in the ministry, and because of that, that has a lot of effect on the ministry's relationship to Harry and how she regains power in Deathly Hallows. Um, so she does kind of... its I don't think it's the end that she necessarily had in mind, but she does, she does have another kind of brief victory moving on. And I guess... Speaking of, we'll move forward into um, some of the points that I wanted to examine, which was more about Umbridge's relationships and interactions with um, some individuals, uh, especially the some of the ones that we learned about on Pottermore. And probably the big thing we learned about with her history is her family on Pottermore, because Umbridge is the daughter of a man named Orford Umbridge and his wife Ellen Cracknell, and apparently she also had an unnamed brother who was a squib. Interestingly enough, her family kind of split right down the middle. Umbridge took her dad's side. Ellen kind of took the uh, Umbridge's brother under her wing. Um, because he was a squib, Orford and Dolores were very disappointed in him and also blamed Ellen for, for him being a squib. And uh, Ellen took... Umbridge's brother with her, and uh, they never saw each other again. But I thought it was an interesting idea that Orford is kind of suggested. I guess I'm unsure because it seems like Orford is suggested to be kind of the root of Umbridge's prejudice and her unyielding beliefs. But the other funny thing is that she doesn't particularly like him either, and it kind of flip-flops on him but her her extremism just gets so unbridled that i can't really i don't really feel like just blaming her dad in this particular instance is really enough to explain her behavior well i don't know if we can because i i don't think she'd have quite so much of a of a of a muggle hatred i mean her mother was a muggle hmm so, I mean, I, I don't know if she learned that from her father. That feels to me more like a backlash against her mother than anything. And then, I mean, I think having a squib brother helps explain a little bit why she hates anyone who isn't the way they should be, if that makes sense. So anyone who mm. should be one thing but isn't, which kind of fits into the half-breed kind of fear she has. That's interesting what you said, though, about the the 
kind of extremism with muggles because in a way that makes like this setup kind of reminded me a little bit of the estrangement between Lily and Petunia. Oh yeah. In some ways it's another estrangement of siblings because somebody has magic and somebody doesn't. But on this in this case it's kind of the other way around where the magic side is the one that's being more prejudiced and the non-magical side is the one that's kind of taking the brunt of it. But apparently it sounds like most of the members of the Umbridge family weren't pleasant people anyway cuz <laughs> um neither neither Ellen nor Orford were in, were particularly happy in their marriage anyway. Um Orford wasn't exactly a star in the wizarding world. He worked for the Department of Magical Maintenance. It is implied he mopped the floors. Uh Dolores didn't much care for him because he lacked ambition. And she bought him off to stay out of her life after he retired. She actually bought him, she got him early retirement and then kept sending him a small fund to keep him out of her way. And then she started lying about her father and his employment record, which kind of began, I felt like this was meant to be a hint about the Selwyn lie that she starts telling in Hallows. Yeah, Um, I, I definitely think so too. And I also think this speaks to why she's a Slytherin. Um, because this mm. is definitely the very bad way that Slytherin traits can uh, manifest themselves. Um, where you start using your cunning and your uh, cunning to kind of cover things up and tell the narrative you want to tell and to reach where you that want. That all stems from fear of not being accepted and people thinking that she's less than what she truly is. And that is a self-confidence issue at its core and mm. what it comes down to. And I th- you know, I was thinking about this and per- I mean, I don't know any janitors. So maybe if somebody out there listening knows somebody, but from what I've heard, janitors are actually, at least from what I've heard again, fairly respected and that, you know, for the majority, janitors stay at their post a really long time. They have a status in the school. They're paid very well. They're kind of that, um, every janitor that I know, you know, even my, my college, we had the singing janitor. He walked around the school (laughs) and everybody knew him. He sang all the time and he was whistling and he was just this jovial, like really nice guy. And he was super well-respected. So uh, I feel like I mean, maybe that's totally different in the wizarding world. I don't know. But it feels like she's being prejudiced for kind of no reason. I mean, from my experiences. Yeah, she seems like kind of a status chaser to me, you know? And where... Not kind of, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, like where she just... She doesn't care about what someone is as a person. She cares about kind of all the accolades and titles they have more than anything which uh, personally i feel like is why she would despise somebody who is a janitor because i feel like she would see that as yeah you don't care you don't care about your life you're cleaning up other people's filth you're worthless even though which is totally not true yeah i was gonna say if you want to know anything about a school or anything it's the janitor you go talk to (laughs) sure absolutely and that's what i mean i feel like they're so respected that it just seems kind of like a rude i mean we, we know she's rude. It just seems like a terrible thing, especially your father. I don't know. She's a jerk. Well, I think that's, <laughs> yeah, that's just, Umbridge 
is that that speaks to kind of the idea of anybody with a level head on their shoulders knows that the that individuals who who are in kind of service work like that um should definitely be congratulated and paid attention to i mean i as a in in the library is kind of the the lowest position on the totem pole is a page where you're pretty much just running around doing whatever the librarians tell you to do you shelve you clean you know you get the boring jobs all day um it's just kind of very monotonous work but the pages are really the, some of the most valuable members of the library because of the library staff because because they shelve everything they can tell you where everything is a lot quicker than a librarian <laughs> can sometimes mm-hmm. you know so so but that speaks too to the prejudice in the wizarding world against and the and the behavior towards house elves mm-hmm. which umbridge would obvious obviously does share because she's she subjugates the house elves to um punishing themselves when they don't listen to her um as oh. we see from dobby yeah. um she overrides um kind of dumbledore's commands to the house elves um and makes them punish themselves again and harry has to undo that with dobby to make sure he doesn't punish himself so it is it's kind of perfectly fitting what you were saying earlier frank about how she doesn't think things through because with her lie about the selwyn family there are members of the Selwyn family who are Death Eaters who are alive and around her in her immediate mm-hmm. vicinity at the at the at the ministry. So it's uh she didn't choose the best surname to lie about. Um because she could easily have been called out on it. But yeah, it was it is kind of interesting to see that uh she started lying about her her parentage from a pretty early age. Um, pretty much right, right when she got to the ministry. And speaking of when she got to the ministry, she had some interesting interactions with her co-workers. As Rowling wrote, nasty things tended to happen to people who asked about her father or anything that Dolores did not like talking about. And people who wanted to remain on her good side pretended to believe her version of her ancestry. <laughs> That's a little scary. <laughs> it is. It's terrifying. She was already... uh like you said, Frank, she was, you know, she was working with fear, but she was already ruling with fear in her early employment days. Mm. Um, that's pretty much where she got her, how she got where she was. That would explain why she got as high as being on the, the, um, chief undersecretary well, to the yeah, yeah. minister. Chief undersecretary, yeah. Well, and then being on the, and, and being in like places like Harry's trial and, um, so many positions in the ministry. Interestingly, something none of us probably necessarily expected, she attempted to marry some of her superiors, um, or at least woo them, um, but her undoing was her much more prominent interest in power than love, and she uh, mostly failed due to her inability to hide her deepest, most vile beliefs after the influence of a glass of sweet sherry. Um, apparently, the things she would say behind closed doors were even extreme to uh, people who were purists in the, in the uh, blood world with, the, with wizards. Um, so I, I can't really imagine what yeah. she was saying that would even maybe put a, make a Death Eater cringe. Yeah. I, I just I can't even imagine that. But interestingly, that that idea of kind of 
how she, what she would say under the influence of alcohol kind of made me immediately think of both Aunt Marge and Trelawney uh-huh. as interesting character comparisons. I can see it more with Marge because the funny thing is Marge is also has also been revealed to she she tried to um, uh, she had a thing for Colonel Fubster, that guy who watched her dogs. Yeah, but he also didn't like her. Um, because of her personal beliefs that she would share when she got drunk. Um, Trelawney, it's interesting that there's a comparison between them, considering that they're kind of mortal enemies in a way. <laughs> um, I don't know what other comparisons you, maybe you could draw between Trelawney and Umbridge. Any ideas? Uh, this sounds terrible, but trying to be something they're not. <laughs> you know, mm. um... Obviously, Umbridge is trying to be something so much powerful than she is, and Trelawney's trying to... Trelawney's feels more pure, of a pure desire, if that makes sense, where she just really wants to be this kind of person, whereas Umbridge is just looking for the power, and so is trying to be a certain kind of person that she thinks can get herself power and status and position in the world. Trelawney wants to impress, and Umbridge wants to rule. There's a very big difference there. Yeah. Between the two. That's hmm. true. The biggest difference is that Umbridge is a massive racist. Yes. <laughs> that too. <laughs> well, and I think that lends to why it's so interesting that when she targets Trelawney, Harry has... And Harry kind of, kind of reflects the feelings of the reader where it's like, well, who do we want to win? Um, because uh, through Harry, we've kind of set ourselves against Trelawney because she's just such a crackpot. Um, it's kind of choosing, in this case, the lesser of the two crazies. <laughs> I um, adore Trelawney because I think she's comical and funny and definitely a lighthearted character, despite the fact that she, you know, predicts a death every year. I think I think she's kind of that kooky aunt that that you have that goes to your wedding and you like sitting next to her for a little while because she makes you feel really good about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I like, I like Trelawney. I have no ill feelings for Trelawney in any way, shape or form. Trelawney doesn't really aggravate me until order of the Phoenix, but it's only because she's aggravating Harry. Um, and yeah. he kind of expresses that through his thoughts. Um, so it's kind of like, it's funny that she kind of reaches her peak of kind of grading on Harry in the year when she's, when Harry kind of has to side with her. Mm. Um, I think really by the end of it, mostly Trelawney is just kind of a pitiable. Yeah. I was going to say that's my biggest emotion Mm. towards Trelawney is just kind of pity. Yeah. Cause you don't have pity for him. Oh no. Um, (laughs) she made choices. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one thing that, um, that rolling story was kind of, what she made sure not to do was introduce an aspect of her history that made her pitiable. Yeah. I, I, guess. I think Umbridge is almost unique in being, I think with Bellatrix and Uncle Vernon, possibly of people who were just uh, completely unambiguously bad, mm. um, which is very unusual in the writing. Cause norm- normally there's some, something a bit more ambiguous somewhere. Do you, do you really think that she's not pitiable? I mean, did you guys not listen to Dumbledore? Don't pity the dead, Harry. Pity those who live without love. <laughs> but I feel like she made oh. the choice not to love. So that's kind of on her. Okay, so did Tom Riddle. And yeah. a lot of people pity him. Well, that one's on him, though, too. I don't pity him for that. 
I pity him That's for not being question, taught though. love. Okay, so Umbridge wasn't either, obviously. Well, I don't know. Was she or was she not? I think she had opportunities to, and mm. she rejected them. The, mo- the, the most pity I've ever had for her was, and it was more embarrassment than pity, was reading that section about how she tried to get somebody to marry her. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't out of a genuine... Uh, need for companionship on her part from right. what Rowling writes. It's purely for power. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's... And, and, but you're right that Dumbledore does point out to Harry that is should we maybe have pity for those individuals? And that's what Half-Blood Prince brings up a lot about Voldemort because Harry starts to actually have pity for Voldemort and kind of quickly says, no, 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 I don't, I don't pity him. And Dumbledore wonders if he shouldn't. So I don't know if we should pity Umbridge or not. That's one we'll have to throw to the listeners with all of this backstory. Maybe you guys can leave your comments about if you pity Umbridge or you think she should be pitied. Umbridge continued her rise to power in the ministry by, as we know, stroking the vanity of Fudge, Cornelius Fudge, while simultaneously taking advantage of his insane anxieties over (laughs) Dumbledore. Anxieties that she apparently shared, which, again, were kind of her undoing in this plot. Um, But she got away with it because Scrimgeour, and this is something that's not really necessarily flat out said in Half-Blood Prince, it's more implied, but Rowling confirmed it through the backstory, that Scrimgeour failed to give Umbridge any due punishment or even really any notice whatsoever for her behavior in order because he was too busy dealing with Voldemort. And it's interesting to me to think that Umbridge actually does have kind of a considerable role without being in Half-Blood Prince. She has a pretty important role in it. Mm. She kind of completes shaping Harry's view on government assistance, I guess. I know, Kat, you've kind of spoken to why order is so important in Harry's... Uh, growth for sure mm-hmm. and in, 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 and i i feel like that's one of those big portions of it absolutely it, he he forms so many opinions about life and people and government and all of the above in order and, and you're right umbridge is a big part of the way that harry forms those opinions and continues to feel for th- what I'm assuming is the remainder of his life. I haven't read Cursed Child yet, but I'll get there. So <laughs> yes, you will. we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, of course, major interaction she has is uh, in book seven with Voldemort and the Death Eaters. Um, Rowling had quite a few things to say on this, uh, including that she is an immensely controlling person and all who challenge her authority and worldview must, in her opinion, be punished. She actively enjoys subjugating and humiliating others, and except in her declared allegiances, there is little to choose between her and Bellatrix Lestrange. So, already we have a pretty intense comparison right there. Um, Dolores is the only person other than Lord Voldemort to leave a permanent physical scar on Harry, Mm. and her desire to control, to punish, and to inflict pain all in the name of law and order are every bit as reprehensible as Lord Voldemort's unvarnished espousal of evil. 
So to me, that brings up the question: Why didn't she just flat out become a Death Eater? I don't think Voldemort wanted her. She... Yeah, never asked. <laughs> really? She's why not? not I... She's not crafty. She's incompetent. Yeah, well, that, and she's not crafty evil enough. Whereas I feel <laughs> most of the people in the Death Eater inner circle are crafty evil you know like they can do some I, I don't know how to describe this i don't think this is making sense but like they they have some ability to do something that will bring about voldemort's ends whereas that's not umbridge's style umbridge wants the recognition she wants everyone to see how great she is which makes which makes me raise the question then what does make her different other than her declared allegiances what does make her different from Bellatrix? Ooh. Okay, so <laughs> I'm going to say that I disagree with Allison. Actually, I think that Umbridge has a lot of things that she could offer Voldemort. She has influence. She has um, the uh, what is that? The, the Iron Fist. She definitely rules with, and I think that. I don't know if she would have joined the Death Eaters if Voldemort had approached or tried to recruit her. I think she would have gone kind of the way of Narcissa because she already mm. believes and supports everything that they do. But I feel like she wouldn't want to commit herself to something because what if something better comes along? So she's kind of like the Blacks then. Mm. Sure, but I do think I do think that she would have stood by him and done anything that he asked her to mm. in a heartbeat in a heartbeat i think narcissus is an excellent comparison in that case because the malfoys are definitely that type as well yeah who for sure kind of run when it's not to their advantage anymore to be a part of something mm -hmm. i'm not um, sure it can just be about risk adversity because she's willing to sort of head up the muggle registration group so, so mm -hmm. she knows that if Voldemort falls, she's going to be in all sorts of trouble, as she is. Uh, so, so I, I, I can't see that it's just a, a matter of oh, I don't want, don't want to take the risk of it, this, this all not working out, um, because she's in big trouble if he fails. That's true. Well, maybe it's the only other thing I can think of is that she also seems to have, until her breakdown at the end of Order. She also has this fanatical allegiance to following the law of the written word. Yeah. I yeah. guess. So, because I think that Rowling acknowledges in her writing about Umbridge that that's what leads to her undoing in order is that she oversteps um, her boundaries. And, you know, she loses Hogwarts, but she doesn't lose everything. And I think she knows that because she overstepped. So maybe it's more a question of because this is because Voldemort's law is the new law because he took over the ministry because Pious Thickness is his puppet. This is the law. And Umbridge, as Rowling says on Pottermore, is finally in her element as the head of the Muggleborn Registration Commission. Mm. It's almost like this is something she always wanted, but she was waiting for the permission to do it. Mm -hmm. Um. And that's what she does in order, too, is she waits for Fudge's permission to do everything. She asks him. It's implied that she asks him for that permission so that he'll give it to her. But she waits until it's written. So yeah, she wants to do the 
crazy Bellatrix Lestrange stuff, but she wants to do it only if it's the law. Which is why I think that's that's kind of what I'm trying to say with, like, she's not crafty evil. She's not willing to be sneaky and subvert the law and subvert what people expect her to do, which is, I think, something that Voldemort kind of expects of the Death Eaters, is that you get the job done however you have to get the job done. And she's not necessarily mm-hmm. willing to do that if it includes something outside the law. What an interesting aspect of her character, though, that she'll she'll go crazy, but only if the law allows her to go crazy. Maybe it's that uh, issue of how culpable she is yeah. for things in the end, which kind of speaks again to what you were saying, Kat, the risk factor. Yeah. But I guess, like Frank said, that, again, was her undoing because... She didn't have the foresight to think that maybe Voldemort could be undone um, and that Harry would actually win in the end and undo all of those laws. I suddenly just started comparing her to Javert from Les Mis. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Yeah, Javert is definitely fanatical in his in his pursuit, but he, he does definitely want to do it by the book. Um, mm-hmm. And when he kind of fails, well... <laughs> <laughs> spoilers yeah that yep yeah, spoilers but i mean really lemis has been around for a while <laughs> <laughs> quite a long time um but yeah that's kind of that's that's some of the interactions that i think we've explored a lot of you know the the characters that she does encounter in the book through actually rereading the book but i did think it was interesting to kind of see what i think that was interesting to that we kind of with through all of that we got to the root of perhaps a little bit more of why she behaves the way she does. For sure. And and I think this is actually a, a perfect transition into what I really want to talk about because you ended with Voldemort and the Death Eaters and kind of talking about her, her interactions with them. And you actually picked up on kind of the first question I wanted to talk about was, would she ever have joined, you know, the movement, so to say, and become a Death Eater? And, you know, I, I think that comparing her to Lord Voldemort is a thing that happens a lot. There's those memes all over the place, you know, um, a picture of Umbridge's face and it says worse than Lord Voldemort. <laughs> all of the um, the political memes that are out comparing Umbridge to, you know, different political candidates and things <laughs> yeah. of that nature. We will not be getting into politics this evening. <laughs> however, <laughs> however I, I did think that it was, um, you know, an affable comparison between her and Voldemort and I really am excited to to touch on that and you know since we already you know touched on the would she join the Death Eaters part I guess I'll move on to my next point was I'm so we've talked about this you know over the last hour and a half or so about her confidence and why she does the things she does her her motivations goals methods all of that and I was thinking about this a lot when I was reading her backstory and kind of thinking about everything we know about her and about Voldemort and, and their confidence levels, um, in, I don't want to say in each other, but in Dolores with Voldemort and also in themselves and how their past comes into consideration for what they believe they can achieve in the future. And I'm wondering, and I was thinking a lot about which one, is more set up to achieve and who perhaps lacks the confidence to do so. And I was, I, I couldn't quite come to a conclusion, which is why I really wanted to bring it up with you guys to, to hear your thoughts on this. I think you were right before Kat. I think Umbridge really does have a confidence issue. Um, and I feel like 
she has a confidence issue in that she has a stopping point. Um, whereas I feel like Voldemort doesn't, um, he feels so entitled to power and to ruling and to who this kind of vision of himself he's created that he feels confident enough that he is this person and he will achieve what he wants at the end. It's only a matter of time and circumstances and finding it. Whereas Umbridge, I think, isn't necessarily thinking that far and just wants things to be in order. And, and that's kind of her, her main goal. And so anytime something steps out of that order and out of the world as she thinks it should be, that rattles her. Right, because she does have to kind of wind herself up in order to... Uh, maybe this is a movieism. I'm not remembering, but in order to uh, torture Harry, or so to say, with the Cruciatus curse, right? In order to get no, information. That's, in the, that's in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I was pretty sure it happened in both. Right. Yeah. She's trying to talk herself into it. Yeah, she has to talk herself into it because it's it's unlawful, so to say. She also massively overreacts to things like the Quibbler article and just Harry being Harry in class, uh, which I think she wouldn't do if she was. Uh, much more confident. Um, I think she's very much lacking confidence. But Voldemort, I'm not sure, is lacking confidence. I think he's very confident, but he's very scared because he's obviously tr- spending all his time trying not to die. But he's very confident about avoiding death. Mm. Yeah. See, I'm. I. This is tough because the thing that I'm thinking about in terms of Umbridge's confidence is kind of one of the most debatable points about her character as far as extended canon. And it's the fact that she can produce a Patronus. Mm-hmm. And that so muddles that, like, so Rowling came out with the story about um, the young boy who could make a Patronus and the evil dark wizard that he went up against who got eaten by maggots trying to produce a Patronus because he wasn't pure of heart. Rowling did that for Book of Spells, and she did that before she really before before after well she had done that after umbridge had been shown to cast a patronus but it kind of struck a lot of the fans i think that she had forgotten that umbridge could make a patronus um because umbridge's patronus is probably the most minor patronus of the entire series and Rowling very much insisted throughout the series that you know voldemort and the death eaters People would ask, what's their Patronus? And she'd say they don't have one. Snape doesn't even have one because the Death Eaters don't use Patronuses to communicate. Um, and they wouldn't be capable of it. But Umbridge's so Patronus of... is very powerful. Uh, it yes. holds off loads and loads of Dementors, and apparently it's really warm because she's in her element. Well, and that's that's a thing, is that that's part of the, that issue, is that... So part of it is that Patronuses, no matter what animal it is, it, it doesn't matter... What animal? The strength will always be more based on the individual, mm-hmm. and you you do have to think. Well, it's a little. She's got an extra advantage because she's wearing the locket. Um, so maybe that secures her confidence. But the fact, but she would have had to have learned to cast a Patronus before then, right? But it's it's when she when we do see her in the series cast a Patronus, it's. Like you said, she's in her element. It's a very ordered environment, and she is in control of that environment, which I think speaks to her mm. lack of confidence that she can't. She feels the need to be in control to be able to do that. 
she can't kind of roll with the punches, you know, she, she has to have everything in order and she needs to be over it in order to feel secure in there, in that position. So I think what we're talking about here is a difference between confidence in self and confidence in convictions. Mm. So I feel like those are yeah. two mm. very different things that probably uh, play against each other quite often within Umbridge's mind. Yeah, and I do think Voldemort is more confident in his convictions. Mm -hmm. But I do think they're both lacking a certain level of confidence in some in a similar respect because they both react badly when things don't go their way mm -hmm. and they make rash decisions because i mean we were ranting throughout deathly hallows about how stupid voldemort was <laughs> that's true um, by the end of it um he really just lost his cool completely and he didn't think ahead in very much the same way that umbridge doesn't think ahead um and he like umbridge just went for power over strategy in many cases he was just seeking ultimate power he went after the elder wand without without understanding what it even was or what its history was um umbridge was wearing the locket without realizing what it was um and what a dangerous object that was she was in these positions that weren't gonna last very long um that were temporary positions that she as we've mentioned before overstepped so I don't, I, I don't, I, in a way there's a, there's a certain bit of their, both of their confidence that I think they both fail on equally, I guess. When, when Voldemort's confidence fails him though, it's because something's seriously gone wrong and there's a reason not to be confident, like Harry's destroyed his horcruxes or something like that. Whereas Umbridge loses confidence, um, can be bluffed very easily as we saw with Hermione and, uh, and, um, and mm. constantly overreacts, and I think he's deeply insecure. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure that, that Voldemort is someone I would say was not confident. I think he's very confident, except possibly in the matter of Dumbledore and such like. Yeah, I think I think you're right, though, that that maybe that goes back to what we were talking about with how what a stickler she is for the law. Um, that's what kind of undoes her confidence so quickly. And I guess since you bring up the law, let's let's fast forward in Umbridge's life to now at, at this moment. She's in jail. Right. We, okay. <laughs> is, is it assumed or is it for sure that she's still in? It's Aspen? for sure. Well, for that sure. she's still there. I don't know, but that she went is for sure. Right. Okay. So I'm going to assume that she's still there because I want her to be. Um, <laughs> don't we all? What do we think? What do we think Azkaban is like for Umbridge? A dang sight nicer than what it was for the people she sent there. There's no Dementors anymore. <laughs> yeah. This is boring. Boring, boring, boring. Yeah. But what do you think she's doing? What is she thinking about? Is she is she plotting when she gets out? I mean, is she ever going to get out? Is she going to die in there? I, I mean, She will ostensibly die in there because she was charged for the death of muggles and muggleborns because... She, or, well, muggleborns because she sent... Yeah. Muggleborns to Azkaban and they didn't survive, um, apparently. So I think she's in there for life. So yeah, she won't be she won't be getting out anytime soon. I can't really imagine her. <laughs> I feel like if there's if if Azkaban is anything akin to a regular prison, maybe she's just like figured out ways to climb to the top of the cellmate food chain. <laughs> I don't know. Like 
she's been stripped of everything that she would normally would make her her in her false way. She doesn't have any frills. She doesn't have her pink. She doesn't have all the things that make it easier for her to pretend, I guess. Unless it's all like orange is the new black up in Azkaban. (laughs) (laughs) Where things are being imported and traded and all that stuff. Pink is the new purple. I I wonder if she's gone mad at all. I wonder if the weight of Mm. everything falling apart around her. Made her go crazy. Yeah. That would make me pity her a little bit. (laughs) I, I could see her going crazy after all of that. Or maybe she does have this kind of insane fanatical belief that she'll somehow get get out and get back in the ministry mm. again. So I, in this moment, kind of compare her and see her as Barty Crouch Jr., mm. where she just believed so wholeheartedly that she did the right thing, that she is self-righteous, and she's sitting there and she's just telling everybody and preaching about what she did and what is right and what is wrong. And I feel like probably prison's a pretty decent place for Dolores Umbridge, I think. I think she's feeling good about herself, despite the fact that she's in prison. I feel like she's probably a little delusional. And it's full of like-minded people for her to converse with. We've got plenty, plenty of deaf ears to chat about. <laughs> That's true. Superiority, too. That's definitely true. <laughs> She might have quite a nice time then. <laughs> she might have. It's the best yeah. place she could be, really. Really. No, it's <laughs> true. And so I figured since we're here, since we're in this moment, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the roots of why people tend to compare these two characters. And I broke it up into a few few categories. We have motivations, goals, methods, and then love and the heart. And just kind of um, emotions, I suppose, could be that fourth category. So the the first one here, and feel free to jump in if you guys see something or think of something that's not on my list. Oh, this is so hard because there's things in your list that get brought up in Cursed Child with certain characters. Uh, uh, yep. <laughs> okay, well, we're not talking about Cursed Child, so pretend that it doesn't, it doesn't exist yet. Nope. Doesn't because exist. it does not exist. Just erase it out of the canon for right now. Well, <laughs> if it's in the canon at all, it's questionable, but we'll get there. So... Cursed Child does not exist whatsoever. Zip. Okay. So the first category here is is motivations. And for Umbridge, I put down that, as we talked about before, that all of her motivations seem to stem purely from the dislike of her mother slash muggles and the embarrassment of her father's lack of station in life. And then for Voldemort, I put down that his motivation is to rule and to become immortal. Honestly, I felt like that was kind of his core motivation in life, to never die, right? I think they both also have a motivation to, they think so highly of themselves. And so I think that's part of their motivation is to achieve the situation that they think best, they best deserve to themselves. It's interesting that you only listed the issue of the mother under Dolores, because I do think Voldemort's mother plays a big part in the early shaping of his motivations, his mother and his father. Because Dolores doesn't like her mom because she's she was a, a muggle and, that, and she may have ruined the family line. Voldemort doesn't... seems to feel, as we kind of felt when reading Half-Blood, that his mother was weak um, mm-hmm. and kind of did a disservice to him by dying. 
But she, but he feels generally the same way though about his father. Yeah, I was going to say they've they've almost flipped which parent they feel a certain way about because mm-hmm. Voldemort feels his mother's right. weak, Umbridge feels her father lacks any like is you could say weak, you know, weak lacking any ambition. Whereas mm. they think their other parent, they think lower of them because they're a muggle. Right. So in my love slash heart slash emotion category, that's pretty much, that's pretty much what I had. I had for Umbridge, the dislike for her family and the fact that she tried to find a partner, whether misplaced or elsewise, mm. um, elsewise, otherwise, <laughs> um, <laughs> but had no luck. And that Voldemort killed his father and thought that his mother was weak and yet never strived for love Granted, Umbridge didn't strive for love either, but still, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. I'm, I'm glad we all agree on that one. Just, so. We all know something, so that's, that's all that is. Okay, stop talking about it. Cursed child doesn't exist. Stop thinking about it. It's not a thing. It doesn't exist. Ooh. You're giving away stuff. I mean, I think stuff. that... I think what you wrote is still totally relevant, though. Of course it's totally relevant, because Cursed Child doesn't exist. Yes, that, no. But even with Cursed Child, I think this still is yeah. relevant. Yeah, um, it is. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it is. Um, so yeah, no, I think, I think that's definitely a big piece of it, is the two of them have a really disgusting, warped, un, like, un, incomplete idea of what love is complete misunderstanding of of how to relate to other people um because they and they both play on that idea that other people should you know that, that that there are people who find them worthwhile or interesting or useful mm. i think more so useful in umbridge's case um but definitely the two of them act like they have feelings or emotions towards people to get them Mm -hmm. to do what they want um which really only motivates them towards their goals yeah really yeah it's all about they they also share a pretty major motivation which is the creation of 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 a of a magic people ruled world Mm -hmm. yeah for sure that's true definitely that's definitely um a bit a big goal for the both of them for sure for Umbridge, I have down more goals for her. And they are to be powerful, respected, inflict pain on others, and law and order. All of those things I pulled directly from Pottermore, <laughs> which yeah. are pretty much right in there. And Voldemort I have down to rule, to be powerful, and to kill Harry Potter. Which, <laughs> within those seven years, is definitely a goal of his. I think Umbridge and- might share that goal as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in some ways. She might. I'm not sure she'd ever actually be able to pull the trigger and kill Harry, but she'd enjoy the process up to that moment. She'd love for somebody else to do it. She definitely and wants him to, to feel a lot of pain. Yeah. She definitely does. Yeah. She was up fusing the Cruciatus curse on him, wasn't she? And I suspect she'd be quite happy killing yeah. him. I think she more than killing him physically, she'd love to kill him, like, she'd love to kill his spirit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think that's important that you've got for both of them to be powerful, but you don't have for both of them to rule because I never like, it's never explicitly stated. And it's funny because I thought it was in her Pottermore biography and I could be right in that it just got deleted when it got imported over to new Pottermore, but I could have sworn 
and maybe this is just an impression I got from Umbridge, that she is more the type to follow power than to act and to you and to kind of be be a sieve for that for 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 power from the from the leader rather than lead herself. Sure. I mean, just look at look at what she did with the high inquisitor position. Mm-hmm. She's technically not leading, she's following the rule of what Fudge wants her to do. Yep. Yeah. And same when she's in at the head of the Muggleborn Registration Commission. She's not the head mm-hmm. of the ministry, she's just the head of a department that's carrying out right. the rules. She wants mm-hmm. the ultimate power, but she doesn't want the responsibility that comes along with that. That yeah. you would need to actually be a leader. Well, and again, and that and again that way, she's a lot like the picture that we get of the Malfoys through history from Pottermore, um, mm-hmm. up to the Malfoy family in the in the seven books, where um, their goal is to kind of be allied with power but never be in control. Um, right. Which, just as much to Umbridge's undoing, that is also to their undoing. For sure. And and I think the, the major thing, the difference between the two as far as their goals go, is that Umbridge, as we have talked about many times, is all about the law and order of everything. Mm-hmm. And Voldemort just does not give an F. Yeah. <laughs> he just is going to do whatever he wants, whether it breaks the law or not. And I think that's a major difference between the two. We'll get there in a minute. There's a conclusion that we're slowly working up to here. <laughs> Next, I want to talk about their methods and how they actually go about, you know, practicing their beliefs, so to say. So for Dolores Umbridge, I have she's a liar. She's a dictator. um, She's only interested in the payoff. Then strict punishment for those who all oppose her and that she's very manipulative. And then for Voldemort, I have secrecy, murder, obviously, uh, dictator. And almost that Hitler-esque mentality of, you know, the purebloodism and all of that. I I felt a little weird putting lying in for Umbridge, but it felt right, Mm -hmm. but also wrong. It's more of not lying. It's more of, like, bending the truth to be what she wants it to be. Mm Because I wouldn't wouldn't say she necessarily flat-out lies, like, fabricates things. She says she's a Selwyn. Yeah, true. Sometimes she she she's lying by omission. Yeah, where she she doesn't do the whole truth. There are points where she does flat out lie, um, but I think like her like her opening speech, or like some of the things that she says in her little monologues in class at Hogwarts. She's she's she tells half truths. Um, Basically versions of a story that will be to her advantage. Just enough truth that people believe her, but she sneaks enough of her own stuff in that people can't really oppose her. Hmm. I guess. So then I, I want to rewind a little bit to the quote that you spoke at the end of your uh, your point, Michael, where Joe is talking about umbrage in relation to Voldemort Mm -hmm. and it says her desire to control to punish and to inflict pain all in the name of law and order are I think every bit as reprehensible as Lord Voldemort's unvarnished espousal of evil and I don't disagree with that at its core in some ways I do disagree with it but I kind of wanted to have each of us come up with a conclusion about why we think um, Umbridge and Voldemort are so readily comparable, and whether you think they're more the same or more different. 
I and why? Write an essay. <laughs> Three rolls of parchment. <laughs> Mine would be that they're both kind of borderline sociopathic, in that mm. they don't understand other people. Um, they go about their goals. I think we've established in different ways where Umbridge is like lawful chaos, where Voldemort is unlawful chaos, hmm. but. The the sociopathy is the is the major piece, I think. The inability to relate to other people around them and to, because of that, have a, an excuse in there as to abuse and torture people would be my. I mean, let's let a, lest we forget, Umbridge made that quill herself. <laughs> Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so why would you invent that in your off time? That's all kinds of not okay. Yeah, I always wondered her, like, why? What inspired that Wh quill? <laughs> yeah, what inspired it and what happened to her? Yeah. Because, okay, her life doesn't seem that terrible. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, she wasn't abused. She wasn't, you know... Short of not being picked to become a prefect, which happens to, you know, 1,000 or 990 uh, something kids. <laughs> whatever. No, because there's no, more there's, there's two per year and there's seven years. So 14. We are so bad about 86, 986 kids. Plus the head boy and girl, 984 kids. That happens to every year. So her life isn't all that bad. So I always wondered why why she made that quill what what was so bad about her life well, and to me again that speaks to the oh. sociopathy and the inability to relate to others and in umbridge's case that and in voldemort's that idea that you deserve something that you didn't get because voldemort also believed that he deserved things that he didn't and that was made clear from dumbledore's first memory of him meeting him in the orphanage mm -hmm. voldemort took things that didn't belong to him and I think Umbridge is very much the same way, too, because as Rowling mentions, and as you kind of touched on, Kat, she didn't get what she wanted in school. Um, she wanted positions of power in school, and she didn't get them. So, again, I, I'm going to go with the sociopathy. Um, well, I, I think that, that, that they what they really share is that they have the same sort of vision for the world. They, that they'd like to have a broadly wizard-led world doing various unpleasant things to muggle-born people and uh, and muggles. Uh, where they differ is how they interact with other people and also, of course, how powerful they are. And Voldemort is extremely charismatic, manages to get... is A, a able to manipulate people and B, um, gets people genuinely to, to think um, that he's a, a chap worth following, where, whereas <laughs> Umbridge doesn't really... You get anyone on board of anything she's doing. She's really just a civil servant in all that she does. Um, she's very much uh, a follower rather than a leader. Um, where they're both willing to do unpleasant things, but Voldemort is is a, is a, is a cut above, and that he's willing to say, go to your house and kill you. Whereas um, Umbridge wouldn't do that unless she was told to by someone else. Uh, I'd, I'd have thought. Um, so I think it, it sort of comes back to to. Um, to, almost a confidence in that I think um, Umbridge is basically someone who uh, will do what she's told. In fact, had Voldemort not had 
think events not turn out as they have. I think she would be a perfectly happy civil servant being a bit unpleasant, but not really doing anything really bad. Whereas Voldemort, I think, was always going to try and take over the world and kill as many people as he could in the course of it. Mm-hmm. I think what I'm going to go with is that there are two different kinds of evil. And there's some very important distinctions in that then. Um, I think we see Voldemort is the very, he's the kind of evil that becomes mythological evil um, that becomes, I don't want to say legendary, but you know, like he becomes, I mean, think about it in our world. Someone says Hitler and everyone knows exactly what you're saying. Um, That's the kind of evil Voldemort is. Whereas Umbridge is more of the, the evil that everyone experiences in their life to some degree. And so you don't really think about it. It's just kind of a part of life until it pops up. Um, So I think it's very interesting that both of these characters are included. And it reminds us that just like there are many ways to be good, there are also many ways to manifest evil. And, and it's important to recognize both and combat both which begs the question then which is brought up so many times is she worse than voldemort is she more evil Mm, i think they're in my head they're kind of on a level playing field um they go about things a different way and as we've brought up umbridge is stopped short of the law but Mm. if the law allows like frank said if the law allows her to do it she'll do it um, no matter how extreme it is. So, yeah, I don't really see a difference in how evil they are. I see a difference in how they approach their evil. I think Umbridge's evil is more annoying and more human. <laughs> and so that's why people hate her more. <laughs> because it's more human. It's more real in your face than big scary guy with no nose wants to kill everyone, you know? Umbridge, like that's- Umbridge's evil is passive-aggressive. Yeah, she mm-hmm. she never takes any responsibility for it for what she says, and she always puts it on other people. Um, I think that's what makes Order of the Phoenix such a frustrating read for a lot of Harry Potter fans. Um, is because we have to hear her, like we feel Harry's frustration that everything she does so perfectly, it, it she's she's not culpable. With any of it, Harry has a really hard time tripping her up and catching her in what she says. Even Hermione does um, and has to acknowledge that, you know, she may be wrong, but she hasn't, you know, there's those points. And that's why it's so clever in a way that she follows the law. There's nothing they can do about it. No matter what she's doing, she's following the law. Even I think McGonagall and the teachers uh, kind of begrudgingly can, you know, realize that. Um, and have a biscuit potter yeah yeah, that's well yeah that's what that's all about that's why the teachers are so miffed throughout fifth year because they want to take action but they can't um there's nothing they can do so yes the the passive aggressive nature of her evil i think is very voldemort's not passive aggressive (laughs) i've always kind of viewed her as evil you could walk up and slap her across the face and turn around and walk away and it wouldn't (laughs) affect the rest of your life (laughs) but if you did that to voldemort you'd be dead on the floor (laughs) what were you gonna say frank well, I, I just said that Voldemort was really quite a bit more evil in, in that when, when Voldemort has a problem, he normally thinks of an evil solution to it. Right, so so uh, he's got a problem of 
um, need some information. Okay, I'll, I'll torture someone and get the information out of them and then kill them. Whereas um, uh, Umbridge, I don't think, does choose just the evil solution to things. So she bribes her father rather than kills him. And she... Um, uh, tries to m- marry bosses rather than imperialism <laughs> or do other unpleasant things. So I think Voldemort would always look for the most evil solution going to any given problem, whereas um, Umbridge, I think, is a bit more circumspect and a bit more restrained, uh, and not just um, as much, and partly by choice rather than just because she doesn't think she can get away with it. I think she, I think hmm. um, Voldemort is looking for excuses to do really evil things all of the time, whereas Umbridge just does it some of the time. Like, I, I like Michael's explanation of lawful and unlawful, yeah. which I think is, for me, the defining factor between the two. I mean, that goes to evilness. And that, um, if you're if you're willing to obey the law, then uh, then as a general rule, you're not going to do quite as evil things as the chap who isn't willing to. It doesn't feel obliged to obey the law. And, and since we've been comparing Voldemort and Umbridge for a while. And we touched about this before, that little pin that I put in earlier when we were talking about Percy. Let's go back to that and unpin it because I want, you know, there were a couple people when I was thinking about Umbridge today, uh, other characters that I thought about, and I thought it would be fun to kind of touch on them and talk about them for a minute. And the first one is definitely Percy because there are a lot of things that he and Umbridge share, particularly when you look at their career aspirations. So they're both very ambitious and they are ruthless in a way. Um, However, Percy does end up repenting his actions, where I feel like Umbridge most definitely never does that. Yeah, I think that they both kind of share that, if we go to Michael's idea, they both share that lawful nature, but Percy is ultimately mm. good, where Umbridge is lawful evil. Well, yeah, per- Percy in <laughs> finally kind of recognizes when the law has overstepped and become corrupt. Um, he figures it out pretty late, but... He figures it out because, and that's he figures it out because he he does have the capacity to love and to and and he's not a sociopath. Um, <laughs> he basically says, you know, by the end that he realized just how much danger his family was in um, with the Battle of Hogwarts and kind of all that he had to lose in that moment. Umbridge wouldn't care about something like that. Um, so that's kind of what breaks him out of his lawful trance. And that's, I think that's part of the big difference between the two of them. Percy, I think, could, could have maybe been, maybe not as extreme as Umbridge, but I think he could have, I think he could have done a similar thing of clawing his way up to power like Umbridge did, stroking other people's Mm -hmm. insecurities to get his way. Yeah. Yeah. No. He, I don't think he would be as alluring. No, <laughs> as Umbridge. No, you know, because she's very flattering. Yeah, to other I think people. we. I, I think... feel like Percy is 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 straighter and more honest and cares less about impressing other people. Yeah, I don't think Percy's manipulative, and Umbridge is very manipulative. I don't think it's that mm. he cares less about Im- impressing other people. I think it's that he. He's just, I think it's more though what you said, Kat, that he's not very good at it. Because I think we saw that in Goblet of Fire with oh, Barty yeah. Crouch Sr. <laughs> where he, kept, he keeps calling him Weatherby. And it's like, that's, he's he doesn't even know who he is. Um, and Percy, right. Percy kind of jumps the gun with how high of a standing he thinks he has and how important he thinks he is. <laughs> 
so then let's talk about another another wizard here who thinks that he is very important, hmm. um, and that's Gilderoy Lockhart. Oof. And he is also very ambitious. He steps on toes to get where he needs to go. He's a liar and a cheat. And I feel like those are things that are inherent to Umbridge's nature and have nothing to do with how she was brought up or her feelings on the world. So what do you guys think about that? This one, I was really interested to hear what you thought. I think Lockhart doesn't really have the sort of sociopathic traits. He doesn't have the cruelty that, that, that Umbridge has. He's but he erases people's memories. Yeah, yeah, he does. But um, that's the only really bad thing he does. And he doesn't really go any further. Hmm. That's... I feel like that's pretty bad. It is pretty bad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this one's... This one's hard, because Lockhart, we really... Well, we do, and we do know Lockhart also has that history of thinking that he's that he deserves things that he doesn't, mm-hmm. um, and he kind of experienced that in his school career, from what we know of him, um, where he thought he was he was never a prefect, right? No, but he thought he should have been. Um, he he was on the Quidditch team, I believe, but that's kind of as far as he got. Was he he did things that were more showy than actually everlasting or worthwhile right as far as his school career went um so he definitely shares that aspect i hmm. he does lie about his past like she does that's also to his personal advantage and is he ultimately a good person as allison pointed out before percy's ultimately a good person do we think lockhart's ultimately a good person i think he's a little bit more neutral he's in it for himself in everything. But he kind of gets... He's, Lockhart is the is one of the biggest victims of poetic justice in the Harry Potter novels. Because <laughs> yeah. mm. he gets exactly what he was giving. Um, so that's... He's a more interesting one because in that way, he's... Like, I, I think especially with Order and seeing it through the trio's eyes, he's there is something a little more pitiable about him in his state... Perhaps because it's irreversible. I don't really know what it is. It's just that he's so simple when they see him again. But in, it's sad in that he's he's got all these vague recollections of things, but he can't quite get back to it. But he does seem quite happy. Yeah, at the same time, yeah. So I think Rowling's judging Umbridge a lot more harshly if she sends her to Azkaban, whereas Lockhart sort of happily having inane conversations with people in St. Mungo's and is otherwise quite, quite content. So otherwise harmless Lockhart, basically. Yeah. Harmless. <laughs> <laughs> right. Less right. so now than he once was, sure. perhaps. I think maybe you're, I feel like you're touching on reasons why Umbridge is, when she showed up, why she was just so horrible. And I think... Frank said it closer to the top of the show, which is that along with kind of, even in some ways less so with Voldemort, but along with Voldemort and Bellatrix, she is just, there's really little to redeem her. Yeah. Well, so then let me throw you a curveball. McGonagall. They both have a cat Patronus and Patronuses have been said 
and, you know, are generally accepted as an expression of your innermost personality. This is what makes that Pottermore entry about Patronuses and everything with this so <laughs> problematic. Well, I, I don't see that because I think they both, they, they share a sense of kind of rigidity and a sense of kind of independence. They can stand on their own two feet. I think it depends on what kind of cat you're talking about. McGonagall's, yeah, I, I see, say. is very much a very much more can take care of itself cat, whereas Umbridge's, I feel like it would be one of those very fussy cats that they're very fluffy that you have to, like, groom constantly or they'll, like, get massive hairballs and die. <laughs> <laughs> but that assumes, that assumes that Patronuses have personalities, which they shouldn't, and they wouldn't. Do you not think well, they do? Because... Well, as Michael said, the strength of the the Patronus is dependent on the wizard and not necessarily the form of the Patronus. And I feel like that that makes a big difference. It's like if somebody had a grizzly bear or a black bear. They're still both bears. That's interesting to note because we know that McGonagall... Well, okay, so we know that her Animagus is a tabby. We don't know that her Patronus is, but I'm guessing it is. We're going to have to go off the assumption that it I is. I think it is, because I think in Deathly Hallows, Harry says it's a cat with, uh, like, square spectacles, which is how... So it, it looks... Per- yeah, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So it looks like our Animagus. Um, we don't know what kind of cat Umbridge has for her Patronus. So that's part of the problem. Because just like... Because the flip side example we have is that Ron's Patronus isn't a dog. It's specifically a Jack Russell Terrier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that says a lot about Ron. Um, However, dog breeds have different personality than cat breeds. But ca- cats sort of cover a wide, wide, wide range do. of behavior themselves. You yeah. get some cats which are less pleasant than others, and perhaps Umbridge's cat was the sort of cat that goes on eating birds and such like, whereas um, McGonagall's cat was a sort of charming cat that sits on walls and occasionally gets stroked. Well, <laughs> and the the interesting piece that the Pottermore... Uh, writing reveals about Umbridge and her relationship with cats is that she actually doesn't like cats. Um, right. That she she takes on cats as another part of her quote-unquote cute, pers- girly persona and that she uses cats. But she she's never had a real one because she thinks they're too... They're too fussy. Inconveniently and messy. Yeah. Inconveniently messy. Yeah. She doesn't want to actually deal with the problem. As you said, Allison, as far as her relationship with power, she doesn't want to actually take responsibility. She just more likes the idealized concept of a cat than she does an actual cat. Yeah. Which is funny that her Patronus would be a cat. If, if, you're, if, if, if a Patronus really is a representation of the deepest... Unless it, it it really unless it really does go her her insanity her insane beliefs go that deep, it managed to manifest in a basically a false Patronus. Mm-hmm. It's a good character study. Dang. Yeah. She's a pretty powerful witch if she managed that. Well, I think in her conviction, she's intensely powerful. Mm. So, all right, I have one more, which I think is going to be a fun one here. Oh boy! And it's yeah. Snape. Severus Snape. (laughs) So we already we already touched on him about you know how Umbridge alienates him as who was likely to be her closest ally other than Filch, other wizard ally I should say, someone capable of doing magic, 
and how she alienates him. However, their childhood is intensely similar because Snape disconnects from his father. And, um, I mean, Umbridge eventually did that too, but she, she kind of disowns her mother. So how Snape, just Snape, Snape and Umbridge run with it. Mm, I kind of think the parental issue is actually more, I think we, we found a better parallel between her and Voldemort kind of with, uh, because Snape doesn't necessarily disconnect from with his mother so much because he he kind of renames himself in tribute to her. Right, but his father, for sure. Yeah, his, his father, father was abusive, right? Yeah. Yes. Right, and also, I, I, I want to put a little asterisk by Snape here. Um, let's try and think about the parts of his character that we know are Snape and not the things that were done on Dumbledore's ask. Mm. So that's... Because uh, uh, those traits could be something that's redeemable, and I really want to look at <laughs> Snape's character and not his actions. In terms of pure character, Snape is incredibly unpleasant. And had he not happened to have been in love with Lily, then, I, then he would have been sort of a full-blown Death Eater. Um, so he's not, in terms of, but for happenstance, he's pretretty close to to umbridge both in viewpoints and in cruelty i'd have thought love is what sets at least three of these four characters apart from her yeah mm. yeah i don't know about mm -hmm. lockhart's is more just kind of a harmlessness um <laughs> yeah in a benignness but um yeah definitely three out of the four is love oh it always comes down to love doesn't dumbledore it? dumbledore was right he'd be smiling right now yeah i think i think you're right frank that kind of at his at his heart Without, if you if you subtract the Lily stuff and the Dumbledore's the secret of Dumbledore stuff, he's just kind of bitter and unpleasant. Um, yeah, he has the same disregard for children. Yep. Um, he definitely. I think Snape has a stronger reason for rejecting children because mm -hmm. he had he's a much worse childhood than she did, um, and he's a better teacher, despite the fact that he's a dick. He is a better teacher. Students do That's learn true. in his yeah. class. <laughs> yeah, I still... I can't condone his teaching methods. No, because... Does. Oh, agreed. But at least they're <laughs> learning something, you know? Yeah. I, I think it's more Umbridge's flashier. She wants more attention for what she does. And I think she gets her sense of, like, self-righteousness from getting attention for what she does. Whereas Snape is very reserved, and he's going to keep everything to himself. Right. He doesn't wear head to toe black for no reason. <laughs> yes. Black and pink. They're not very... Kind of opposites, in a way. That is funny, though, mm -hmm. because I think in some points Snape does enjoy accolades when they come his way. He loved the idea of being congratulated by the minister when he supposedly captured Sirius. Yeah. But I think uh, he that's... really wanted the defense against the dark arts job. Uh, there, there are instances where Snape does enjoy attention. I don't think I think you're right in that he doesn't crave it quite in the same way Umbridge does, but he doesn't mind it. Yeah, but I, I think you're right. I think the serious one though more is that he's so elated at the thought of one-upping Sirius that mm. 
And James and Lupin. Yes, yeah. that he wants that attention. He wants that to be firm in stone, that people know he's better than them. Yeah. Um, whereas in his own kind of personal motivations and desires, he does not want those to be displayed to the world, whereas I feel Umbridge does. Yeah, I, Snape isn't as much of a grandstander as she is. That's for sure. Well, I'm sure there are a thousand other character comparisons that we we could do and i hope that that the listeners out there decide to you know kind of cling on to these and i'm interested to hear what they all think about it but that wraps up our discussion on dolores umbridge that's it speaking of you know getting our listeners input we definitely want to thank frank for being on the show because frank you've been a listener with us for quite a while we we've we've used quite a few of your comments on the shows, so. Every now and again, yeah. Yeah, I haven't posted for a while, but, but uh, thank you very much. It's always yeah. a joy to see Wizard or What in the comments section. So. It is. And now when I read the comments, I'll read them in a nice little British accent. <laughs> so, it's perfect. And as we mentioned before, we do want to remind you guys that our next four episodes are going to be dedicated to Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. <laughs> we'll be doing one <laughs> one act per episode, and we are taking guest submissions right now. So head over to our website, and Allison's going to tell you how to do that. Yeah, um, I am very, very excited. Uh, so if you want to come join us, Head on over to our topic submit page on the main site and go suggest some things. Uh, if you have a set of Apple headphones, you're all fine. Um, something with just a microphone and a headphone, that's good. Don't need anything fancy. And then just as we're getting into this too, please, 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 everyone, be careful with your spoilers on the internet with Cursed Child. Remember that there are a lot of people who haven't read it yet or are waiting to see it before they read it. So just be very careful. Uh, Rosie for one. Yes. Rosie for one. So don't tweet at Rosie no. because she doesn't see it till the end of August and she will be very mad <laughs> yes. if one of our listeners spoils it for her. So don't tweet at Rosie. Just be considerate <laughs> of people and be careful with what you say. <laughs> Hashtag keep the secrets. Yes. And we have to ask, since since uh, this is another one of the examples of our newer format, I do have to ask Frank... Did you enjoy this new format and being a part of this different setup for Alohomora? Uh, yes, it was great fun. In fact, thank you very much for having me. Oh, good, good. I wanted to make sure we we always like to let our listeners know that we you know we we want you guys to help us shape this new look for Alohomora. So you got to make sure and uh, if you're not auditioning to be on the show, which we hope you are, and we know a lot of you will be for Cursed Child because we've been reading your tweets. Um, but if you aren't, make sure and head over to the main site and give us your feedback about how we're doing with the show. Speaking of tweets, we do have a account for the show. It's at MN. There's also a list on our Twitter account if you want to follow any of the hosts or talk to us about anything. I'm going to read Cursed Child tonight, so then the only people who will have not read it are Caleb and Rosie. So you can tweet at the other five of us anytime you'd like. You can also head over to facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore. Our website is alohomora.mugglenet.com. You can always send us an audio boom over at alohomora.mugglenet.com. Press the little record button in the right-hand uh, column. Keep your message under 60 seconds, and you can hear yourself on the show. I can honestly say I've never seen more activity on my Twitter ever. 
than the, this true. past week. You've got a lot. It's, <laughs> it has been really, really difficult because people are tweeting things at me, and I'm like, that could be a spoiler. I can't <laughs> I read it. I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, it was, I made the mistake of like the next day of being like, you all okay? Is everybody doing okay? Make sure you eat your food. And then everybody was like, Michael, we want to talk to you about everything. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait a minute. We have we have some time before we get to that show. And speaking of that, the reason we get to keep going is because of you, the listeners, because we have a Patreon now. And we want to remind you once again to check out our Patreon. Uh, you can sponsor us at patreon.com slash alohamora. Uh, you can sponsor us for as low as $1 a month if you so choose. That's what helps to keep this show going and to ensure that we are here for you to break the curse of Cursed Child, as I'm putting it, I'm choosing to put it. Hashtag break the curse. That's a thing now. Um, so, <laughs> but yes, we, th- we really thank you once again. And we want to once again thank Richard Casey for sponsoring this particular episode. And we want to remind you, too, that if you have donated for the episodes and you haven't heard your name yet, that's because we've had a lot of wonderful Patreon donations and we are going through them an episode at a time. You may also hear your name on a recap episode. So make sure to listen to the recap in tandem with the main episode. But for now, we're going to go hide in the room of requirement because Umbridge is... Patrolling the hallways. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Allison Sigurd. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 199 of Alohomora. Open the door, if you must. <clears throat> Excuse me. My goodness. <laughs> of course, I mean, my Siri goes off. <laughs> I don't. I mean, did that sound like I said, "Hey Siri"? <laughs> I think it did. That's funny. She's just being ready for anything. She probably thought you needed to go to the hospital or something. <laughs> mine is a man, and he's called Sirius for the record. Oh, mine is a man too. So is mine. I, I don't call him Sirius, but yeah, he's a guy. Yeah. You could call him Sirius. I'll let you borrow it. That's cute. <laughs> I know. I, I'm I'm adorable.